Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. People who listen to music, they hear notes that aren't in chords, and they miss notes that are there. So in the absence of having anyone there transcribe what actually was being played, it is a mystery. ReSound is a remix of audio stories, music, found sound, and sound bites we love from all over the world. L.A. was the backyard pool mecca. But not just the backyard pool mecca, the properly, beautifully designed backyard pool. And I don't know of any place in the world that, that has that proliferation of that kind of voluptuous, sensuous design. For decades, the most famous chord in pop music was also the most mysterious. Until today. Also, what do skaters, Finland, swimming pools, and the California drought of the 70s all have in common? Stick around to find out. Yeah! That was legitness! Yeah, To the uninitiated, skate parks look like concrete jungles. Hard edges, rails, steps, and slabs. But through a different lens, they're virtual gardens of slides and slopes, swooping up and down and around the ground like ocean swells. And that is exactly the point. In our first story, 99% Invisible producer Avery Truffleman and host Roman Mars go down a rabbit hole, tracing the birth of skateboarding from California to Finland and into the humble swimming pool. Stories like these are exactly the kind we love at ReSound, with as many twists and turns as an aerial trick on an X Games halfpipe. This is The Pool and the Stream, a story in three parts. Here's host Roman Mars. Part one, California. Two skaters in a plaza are confronted by a guard. Can't skate here? Nope. Oh man, it looks so good. Just one broken leg, please. It's kind of a pity that skateboarding is banned in so many places. Because skateboarders appreciate the small details of architecture more than anyone. They recognize the quality of concrete, the grain of wood, the incline of a structure. They recognize the way a landscape flows. May I ask you to start by introducing yourself? My name is Jake Phelps. I'm the editor of Thrasher Magazine from San Francisco, California, born and raised. Yeah, what do you got? Thrasher is a skateboarding magazine that skaters call the Bible. Visiting its headquarters is kind of surreal. It's like if you went to a skate park and yelled out to all the punks, Hey, you guys want to go hang out in an office? They're all there in sneakers and beanie caps, slumped behind monitors like caged animals. You can tell they'd rather be skating. I'm a skater. I dress like a skater. These are the costumes I've been running all of my life. I don't wear fucking Louis 
Vuitton clothes and shit. I mean, I wear sneakers. That's, you know, this is just the way it is. We, we're utilitarian. We skate. It's the greatest thing in the world. Jake Phelps is 55 years old. Tattoos all over his arms, big thick glasses over his face, and close cropped gray hair. He blatantly hits on me in the interview and invites me to his punk band's show over the weekend. I don't think he'd mind that I told you that. Skateboarding never says no. Girlfriends, jobs, life, people always say, no, I can't do that. I've been doing this for 40 years. You can't tell me I can't do it. F*** you. Stay the f*** away from me. Skateboarding is, you know, it's like an extension of me. It's like, it's an art. It's something that you have to understand. So what is, where does the artistry come in? It's your whole joie de vie, how how you, you hold yourself. And that joie de vivre, that sort of badass, devil-may-care attitude that skaters have perfected, that's kind of funny because skateboarding was pretty dorky back when it was just getting started. The very first skateboard was called the skateboard scooter, and it was a scooter. This is Stacy Peralta, skateboarding pioneer and director of the excellent documentary Dogtown and Z-Boys, which is all about the birth of modern skateboarding. Stacy says at some point, no one really knows when, but someone knocked the handlebars off the scooter and just rode the board. And probably emulated surfing. And so what happened was skateboarding had a very, very brief appearance in 1964 and 65. Skateboards were sold in toy stores, and skateboarding briefly became a fad. But then as quickly as it started, it died out again. It was like the hula hoop. It has come and gone. As the skateboard fad was receding into the distance, Stacy was growing up in Venice Beach, California. It was the early 70s, and Stacy was a little surf rat with long blonde hair. And when the waves were bad in the middle of the day, he and his friends wanted something to do. What we really wanted to do was emulate surfing. They wanted to surf on land. And they discovered old skateboards. One of my friends, his older brothers had skateboarded in the very early 60s, and they had two skateboards left in their garage that they never touched. So we started riding those boards. Those early skateboards had these hard, clunky wheels made out of clay or steel. So you'd eat dirt if you ran over a pebble or a penny on the ground. And that meant tricks had to be very simple, like I can stand up straight or I can balance on the tip of the board. Maybe a wheelie. You could just kind of scoot back and forth on a flat, smooth surface. It's flatland tricks. That's basically what you could do. Stacy was really young, like maybe seven years old. But he can remember skating for the first time. Even with those big, clunky clay wheels, little Stacy found a blissful stillness. But it was so profound that from that point forward, I needed to get back on that board and find that stillness because... I'm more relaxed when I stand on a skateboard than I am when I walk. But Stacy and his friends were discovering skateboards while the rest of the country was forgetting them. Stacy had that old board he'd unearthed in his friend's garage. But after I wore that out, there was no more boards to, you know, that I could buy in stores. It just, you couldn't buy a skateboard back then. So instead, Stacy and his friends would go to a thrift store and buy a pair of roller skates, which had clay or metal or hard plastic wheels. And maybe Stacy would take the left skate and his friend would take the right skate and they'd cut the bases off the wheels and put them on a plank of wood and then ride that back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth for hours. And the hours that we spent doing it would be equivalent to a kid today, you know, jumping up and down for eight hours on a pogo stick, you know, every single day, seven days a week. And you'd you'd probably go, geez, maybe we should tell this kid that there's no future in this. 
Then in the early 70s, an invention comes along that would revolutionize skateboarding, the urethane wheel. This soft plastic wheel had more give to it and held the ground, unlike those clunky, dangerous clay wheels that preceded it. These soft wheels were intended for roller skaters at the dawn of the roller disco era, but a small company called Creative Urethanes began producing urethane wheels specifically for skateboards. Put the board together back there, and then I'll put the wheels on up here, okay? The wheels were sold at surf shops, since there were no skate shops, and they were advertised in Surfer magazine. 58.46 altogether. And in the summer of 1974, sales of urethane wheels went gangbusters. Suddenly we had a wheel that could grip, and it could roll over bumps and little rocks. And it allowed us to attack terrain that previously were not, we were not able to attack. Now they could skate all surfaces. Greater Los Angeles was theirs to claim. And so that meant schoolyards, that meant in garages, city buildings. Uh, it was any place. Anything was rideable. But none of this was designed for us. None of it. These young kids were jumping fences and trespassing and breaking things, all in search of new surfaces to ride. They were reinterpreting the city around them finding the beauty in the pavement and the concrete of their world. And then, in the mid-70s, there was a drought in California. In Southern California, the driest part of the state, there have been dozens of brush fires. Some have been big and expensive, and more fires are threatened as Californians pray for rain. But right now, forecasters say none is expected. The drought was so bad in the 70s, that the water company ran billboard ads that encouraged couples to shower together to save water. And to further save water, people didn't fill up their swimming pools. And in Los Angeles, there are a lot of swimming pools, and they're very distinctive looking. What we had in Los Angeles is we had the big, beautiful, voluptuous shapes that you did not see anywhere else in the world that you find in Los Angeles, except in very, 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 very small quantities. The pools of Los Angeles are shaped like peanuts, like keyholes, like kidney beans. They have these curved, undulating edges. They are paved in even, smooth concrete with gently varying rounded depths that slope back up to the lip. And during the drought in the 70s, they were all empty. They were perfect. They just were so beautifully conceived and designed, and um, we fell in love with the shapes. Stacy and his friends would hunt for pools. They'd find a house under construction or patrol the fancy parts of town where they knew they'd find the most sumptuous, luxurious pools. Tony! They'd hop the fence. They'd break in. We'll bail. We'll lift it up to you guys. If there's a little bit of old, dirty water in the pool, they drain it out themselves with buckets they brought or trash cans they found, or eventually, they'd bring an industrial vacuum along with them. And then they would skate up and down in the pool. They'd go so fast they could go up the wall. They could skate like they were surfing a wave. When we finally got to ride swimming pools and feel weightless, like going up a vertical wall, weightlessness is pretty extraordinary. Skateboarding became a form of choreography where you're trying to do as much as possible in the limited space of the pool and look graceful while doing it. Here we were a bunch of scruffy kids and here we are riding in backyard pools and we know what we're doing is beautiful and we get to feel beautiful. And this beauty attracted attention. Back in the first wave of skateboarding in the early 60s, there had been a magazine called simply Skateboarder 
It went out of business when the skateboarding fad died out. But in the mid-70s, the magazine came back, and it featured Stacy and his friends riding in backyard pools. At that point, every kid in America and all over the world wanted to get inside a swimming pool. That was it. That was the holy grail. And so the drought really acted as a wonderful midwife to the skateboarding revolution. Eventually, Stacy and the other skateboarders got so good at pool skating, they were able to skate up over the edge of the pool. They could kind of jump up, up in the air, and maybe do a spin or something before dropping back into the pool. And these aerial tricks led to another genre of skateboarding. So style became less important, and extreme maneuvers became more important. Aerial tricks paved the way for the X Games, Halfpipes, and Tony Hawk. This whole chapter of the sport where skaters were trying to vault themselves really, really high up in the air. And that can all be traced back to the rounded, biomorphic pools of Los Angeles. The ones shaped like peanuts and keyholes and kidney beans. L.A. was the backyard pool mecca. But not just the backyard pool mecca, the properly, beautifully designed backyard pool. And I don't know of any place in the world that, that has that proliferation of that kind of voluptuous, sensuous design. The pools of Southern California and their proliferation led to the proliferation of skating. More people are skateboarding now than ever. It's a $7 billion industry, goddamn. That's Jake Phelps at Thrasher again. People are skating pools every day. People are skating right now. People just Somebody just broke their arm in a pool right now. Trust me. And the pools of California bring us to our next chapter. Do you know the story about like where the bean-shaped pool comes from? The bean shape? What's the bean shape? I don't know. The, the, the right henny kidney? Is that what it's called? Well, yeah. They don't call it bean-shaped. <laughs> I don't know. Well, it's a, it's a, well, I mean, obviously it would be some esoteric design to someone's backyard. Well, Jake Phelps doesn't have to be all like that about it, but he's right. It starts with one esoteric design in someone's backyard. But it might be the most famous private backyard in 20th century American history. Part 2. Sonoma. On top of a remote hill in Sonoma County in Northern California, at the end of a long, curvy dirt road, a car pulls into a driveway. Three small dogs rush out to meet Avery Truffleman. Hi. So you got a little lost. Sorry, we, we overshot it a little bit. A little, sounds like it. Justin Fagioli and Sandy Donnell are the owners and caretakers of this property, which is known as the Donnell Garden. It's really famous in the world of landscape architecture. But if you want to visit it, it's kind of a challenge. You can't find it on Google Maps. That address is wrong. And there aren't any public listings or sites with contact information for it. Because it's just a private home. A modest-sized, retro-modern-looking house on a hill. It was Sandy's parents' place. I grew up on the Donnell Ranch property, born in 1951, the youngest of three children. The Donnell Garden was planted in 1948. And it was revolutionary at the time. Traditional gardens of the early 20th century had been more or less symmetrical rows of different kinds of flowers. They were kind of like plant museums, maybe accented with a geometric hedge or a fruit tree. The Donnell Garden is nothing like that. It's mostly lawn. The lawn is the, it's a unifying feature. It meanders through everything, and it becomes the river, the green river that goes from space to space. The garden looks like a sea of clean-cut grass with floating islands of tropical plant clusters or groups of rocks and a few ancient oak trees. And there are large swaths of concrete and a big wooden deck. 
from above, the garden is almost like a Matisse collage, an arrangement of abstract shapes on a green grass canvas. And the most distinctive shape, of course, is the pool. Oh, my God. Here's the object of your search. (laughs) A kidney pool. This, from what we know, was the first kidney-shaped pool in California. It's every bit as beautiful as I thought, actually. It is bright, pristine, electric blue. And in the center of the pool is an abstract sculpture by Adeline Kent, which has two holes through it, one above water and one below. And you can swim through the holes in the sculpture like a dolphin, and it's insanely fun. I know, because I tried it. (laughs) The pool overlooks acres of dusty ranching property. You can hear the hum of cars on a racetrack off in the distance. And you can see the hodgepodge skyline of San Francisco looming hazily beyond it. I couldn't help but think that a skater would kill to drain this pool. It's beautiful. (sighs) Wow. It's hard to overstate the importance of the Donnell Garden to both formal landscape architecture and everyday American backyards. Sandy Donnell told me that a picture of the garden was in the Encyclopedia Britannica under landscape architecture. The property also helped create what we think of as the modern suburban backyard with the lawn, the deck, and the pool. I would guess, with the exception possibly of Versailles, that the Donnell Garden is probably the most published garden, at least in the 20th century. Architectural historian Mark Tribe. The Donnell Garden was designed by Thomas Church, a landscape architect who wanted to create outdoor spaces that people would use and love. The title of Thomas Church's book was actually Gardens Are for People. In Gardens Are for People, he asked hypothetical clients, how much do you really like to garden? If you don't want to garden, you know, the paving makes a lot of sense. Church said that gardens didn't necessarily have to be those traditional rows and rows of flowers. And this was a revelation for modern families like the Donnells. They wanted a place for parties and relaxing and lounging. They wanted their yard to be a piece of functional art that their kids and dogs could clamber on. The Donnell Garden became the epitome of outdoor California lifestyle. Throughout the 1950s, lifestyle magazines like Sunset and House Beautiful featured the Donnell Garden on their covers. In many ways, it it became the icon, certainly of American modern landscape architecture. A lot of it being, of course, that's why we're here, for the swimming pool. As images of the Donnell Garden began to spread, newly minted suburbanites across Southern California began to imitate it. And West Coast landscape architects were inspired by its creative use of paving and lawn, and its beautiful, biomorphic, curvy pool. The pool inspired thousands of imitators and eventually thousands of young skaters in Southern California. Now, we can't know for sure exactly where Thomas Church came up with the idea of using the original kidney shape. Retro boomerang shapes were appearing in everything from fine art to mass-produced textiles and formica tables. By 1947, these shapes were everywhere. You know, they were on everything and everywhere. So it's really hard to say. But there is a really interesting and widespread theory about where Church got his inspiration for the kidney pool. Skateboarding came to my neighborhood like at the end of 1980s. We got a little bit of like magazines and videos coming from, from the California scene. Part three, Finland. Avery Truffman actually went to Finland. 
How did you get those videos of the skaters in California? The first ones came like when some someone's dad went to, <laughs> you know, a business trip <laughs> to the States and then they brought, <laughs> brought back some videos. Yanisario grew up in Finland, watching videos of California skaters, and he caught the bug in a big way. He started skateboarding and then became sponsored and started skating in cities all over the world. Through skateboarding, I, I fell in love with architecture and design. Jana went to university and studied architecture, in part to have more control over the spaces he skated. I'll, I'll just, like, sneak into that business and, and, and I won't tell anyone that I'm a skater and just make sure that the handrail is skatable or the stairs have a good, good, good materials and... And in architecture school, Jana distinctly remembers a lecture he heard about the origins of the kidney pool. There was a professor coming from California, and she was having a lecture and talking about the Donald Garden. I think she was saying that it's the mother of all kidney pools. But that didn't seem right to Jana. He knew about another kidney pool. It's actually a grandmother of all pools. It's in Finland, in the middle of Finland. And it was designed by an architect and designer named Alvar Alto. Alvar Alto's work and his life was exceptional in that sense that he was a pioneer in cross-disciplinary thinking and uh, design. This is Antti Alava, an architect and vice president of Alto University, which is named after Alvar Alto. He designed uh, marvelous furniture, and also he had a flourishing business. Alvar Alto is the man in Finland. There are busts of him everywhere, He designed a lot of the public and government buildings and meeting halls in Helsinki. And Alvar Alto's furniture is in, I kid you not, almost every single building. Almost every home has something designed by Alvar Alto. <laughs> Alto is beloved and venerated beyond Finland, too. Frank Lloyd Wright loved Alto, and he hated other architects. Frank Gehry also cites Alto as one of the only other architects that he admires. Alvar Alto was an architect's architect, and his work helped create a unique Finnish aesthetic, which was an important part of developing a unique Finnish identity, because Finland is a relatively young country. Okay, Finland was first for about 500 years part of Sweden, and then for 100 years part of Russia. There are some movie theaters in California that are older than Finland. It was only in 1917 that Finland became independent. Before that, it was Russian, and it looks like it. The architecture in downtown Helsinki is unexpectedly regal and intimidating. The buildings line the streets like towering pastel cakes with white ornate trim. Helsinki has stood in for Moscow and Leningrad in a number of films. And uh, at the end of 19th century, it became very important to create our own national identity and try to get independent. Finland wanted to step away from Soviet romanticism especially because the rest of Europe was experimenting with a new approach called functionalism. Functionalism was a reaction to the dirty, nasty, polluted cities of the 19th century, which were loaded down with extra trim and ornaments and statues. And functionalism was like an architectural cleanse. Functionalism wanted to be healthy. There was lots of sunlight, air between buildings. It was fresh. Think of the sharp lines and steel and metal of the German Bauhaus or the pristine concrete of Le Corbusier. Functionalism is clean, geometric, stark, spacious, modern, and a little sterile. So 
Aalto was influenced by functionalist ideas, but wanted to humanize them. Adopting this kind of international influences and making his own versions of that. Aalto's architecture was crisp and functional, but a little more natural and organic. And he did this in part by using a lot of wood. He made wood behave in ways it hadn't before. Bending and gluing in a new way. This is Jonas Malmberg, architect and art historian with the Alto Foundation. Where are we? Can you describe where we are? Sure, this is uh, Alto's own house, and uh, also the office was located here. Jonas showed me the legs of some chairs and stools Alto had made, and talked about Alto's patented method for bending and curving wood. This method allowed Alto to make curvy molds to make these wavy glass vases that he became famous for. It's blown in the timber mold. We get a bit different and and new shapes for it. Curves made their way into Alto's stairways and walls, and he made curving partitions to break up space, and he used rounded tiles and undulating countertops. So is it fair to say a lot of the curves he just made because he could? Like he figured out how to do it and he was just giddy with it? Probably, yes, yes. And, and he, he probably wanted those. He, he wanted the buildings to be kind of something that you can't really predict. So when an art collector and lumber heiress named Marie Gulickson asked Alto to design her country home, the Villa Myria, Alto wanted to keep it very stark and clean, but also very friendly and natural. And we don't have there, like, any expensive material. Just timber in the floor, some red brick on the wall. We don't have any, any material that would be posh. But of course, in Finland... If you're going to have a country villa, you're going to have a sauna. It's part of our Finnish way of, of spending the time in the rural countryside. It's you know, like sauna culture. And if you're going to have a sauna, you need a pool to cool off in. And Alvar Alto made a pool with a very curious shape. Well, it's the kind of free form. It's a bit of a, well, maybe a sock, isn't it? <laughs> it is, it is, it is. It's kind of a sock with curvy ends. Hmm. The story goes that Thomas Church, the California landscape architect who designed the Donnell Garden, went on a trip to Finland with his wife, Betsy, in 1937. Somehow they found out the address of Alvar Aalto's home and studio and got themselves there. And they just knocked on the door. Architectural historian Mark Trive again. When the story goes, Aalto came out in his bathrobe and invited them in. And so Thomas Church and his wife, Betsy, and Alvar Aalto and his first wife, Aino, all really hit it off. And they got to be good friends. And it is quite possibly the case that Aalto's design for the Villa Myria and its sock-shaped pool were displayed in his studio when Thomas Church was visiting. Myra was finished in 39, but they were there in 37. Maybe it was on the drawing boards and maybe there was no pool at the time. I mean, we just just don't know. There's no way to verify it. But that's the story architects tell. If there's a book about the Donnell Garden, it's probably going to have a mention of the Villa Myria. Yeah, the story goes that Thomas Church went back home. Then it was 1948 when the Donnell Garden was made. So almost 10 years after And then the Donnell Garden Pool becomes famous, appearing on magazine covers and inspiring hundreds of imitators across Southern California. And these hundreds of curvy biomorphic pools get emptied out in the drought in the 1970s and inspire a whole new skate culture. And that culture inspired kids around the world like Yana to take up skateboarding. And skateboarding inspired Yana to become an architect. And now he has a specialty. 
Yeah, I'm the only skate park designer in Finland. He designs curvaceous pools all over Europe. Pools exclusively for skating. There's one big pool coming to the east side of Helsinki. It, it's it's a not really nice figure in, and something to be proud of, I think. When Jana says he's proud, he means that public skate parks and skate pools should be a source of civic pride, especially in Finland, where, Jana likes to tease, modern skateboarding began. I kind of use it as a joke when, when we're out with skate park builders. They're usually from States or Canada, and I try to claim skateboarding for having its roots <laughs> in Finland. Some say that Alvar Aalto's pool at the Villa Maria was inspired by the soft bends in a Finnish lake. Or maybe Alto was just excited about his ability to make wavy forms, since that kind of became his signature in his furniture and homewares. Or who knows, maybe he was inspired by some other curvy pool somewhere else in the world that we don't know about. Alto didn't like to talk about his inspiration. He didn't write too much about it either. Alto only talked about the birth of his ideas in an extended metaphor about a fish in a stream. Architecture and its details are in some way all part of biology. Perhaps they are, for instance, like some big salmon or trout. They're not born fully grown. They're not even born in the sea or water where they normally live. They're born hundreds of miles away from their home grounds, where the rivers narrow to tiny streams. Just as it takes time for a speck of fish spawn to mature into a fully grown fish, so we need time for everything that develops and crystallizes in our world of ideas. Go farther up, push. The Pool and the Stream was produced by Avery Truffleman for 99% Invisible. Coming up after the break, the Beatles and the most famous chord in pop music. It has long been a pondered over and hotly debated mystery, but after more than 50 years of head scratching, the mystery has been solved. Back in a minute. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure.
Welcome back to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. At Third Coast, we are constantly listening to podcasts, radio shows, everything we can get our ears on. And of all the stuff we hear, we save the very best for you. To me, it's like... Uh, the feeling I might get if I jumped into a lake on a hot summer's day. And just the, the brilliance and the clarity and the coolness of the chords struck me. And, you know, I don't think there's another song quite like it with an opening like that. There is so much going on in that one chord that producers in Australia had to make a podcast about it. There's dissonance and harmony, overtones and undertones, history and mystery. Everything you want in a good story. Here's producer Joel Werner with The Magical Mystery Chord. It's July 1964, the height of Beatlemania. The Beatles are about to release their third album, and it's a bit of a departure. It's their first full album of original music. There's no cover songs this time around. And it's a shift away from their rock and roll roots to more of a pop sound. But also, the album will act as a soundtrack to the band's first movie. So they need to make a statement. The Beatles needed a big beginning to their first feature film. And I think they played around with different kind of openings. Like, maybe, how about... Or perhaps, until, after a bunch of experimentation, they come up with this. The opening chord to the song, album and film, A Hard Day's Night. There's a musicologist called Alan Pollock who examined and analysed all of the Beatles' songs, and he said that if he were dead for 100 years, and they managed to revive his body at that point, if they played the opening chord of A Hard Day's Night, he would recognise the song that it was from. Jason Brown is a Beatles superfan, and his fascination with this chord started early in life. As a teenager, he happened to be learning how to play guitar around the same time he discovered the Beatles. And I would spend eight, ten hours a day in the summer during high school teaching myself to play the Beatles songs. He'd pick up these songbooks with chords to all the Beatles songs, but there was one chord that none of the books seemed to get right. It was in particular the opening chord of A Hard Day's Night. I found one songbook that had the guitar playing a bar chord, which is your index finger across one of the frets, the third fret. didn't sound quite right. And another book had it in a different location with a different chord. And it seemed to me that every book was transcribing what they thought the Beatles had played, but there was no way of telling what was right and what was wrong. But hang on, how can a chord be a mystery? Like, surely with a bit of musical knowledge, you can just figure out what notes fit together to make a particular sound. It's hard to tell what exactly is being played. I mean, people who listen to music, they hear notes that aren't in chords, and they miss notes that are there. So in the absence of having anyone there transcribe what actually was being played, it is a mystery. Every musician, no matter how schooled, will hear different things. You know, especially with chords that aren't of the standard fare, where you might have a chord but extra notes added in that are non-standard and unusual. 
So, there's the fact that this chord's a bit weird that makes it difficult to decipher, but there's also the very nature of our perception, the physics of the way we perceive sound. The way people listen to music is really quite interesting. When a string is plucked, you not only get the main frequency, which is called the fundamental, but you get what are called harmonics, which are multiples of higher multiples of that original frequency. And all of that comes into our ears, and our brains have to make sense out of that. And it also includes anything else that might be rattling in the room that all produce their own frequencies, and there's noise. So it's not surprising that as good as we are as humans in deciphering sounds, that we will have some sounds that are difficult to appreciate and understand fully. Okay, so even for trained musicians, figuring out exactly what's being played in any particular chord can be difficult. But this controversy's been going on for decades. Surely you could just ask a Beatle. They come back after 10 years, 15 years. I mean, no one notated things at the time. And no one can quite remember exactly what happened. I think they remember big picture things and some details, but not all the details. By mid-1964, the Beatles were busy. They were doing a lot of recording at the time, and quickly. The song, A Hard Day's Night, was recorded in a single day, and it was the shortest interval between the writing and recording of any Beatles song, except for those they made up on the spot in the studio. And this recording schedule was in addition to playing live, filming movies, publicity engagements, everything else that comes with being the most popular group on the planet, a cultural phenomenon. So it's not inconceivable that you might not remember the specific detail of a particular chord you played over half a century ago. But someone did ask a Beatle. Back in February 2001, in an online chat, someone actually asked George Harrison how he played the opening chord to A Hard Day's Night. And even then, he could only kind of remember his part in the chord and had no idea what any of the other Beatles were playing. He said... You'll have to ask Paul about the bass note to get the proper story. And, as far as I can tell through my own research, no one has. Or at least, there's no record of it. Solving this mystery has become a bit of an obsession for Beatles superfans like Jason Brown. But it's the kind of thing that fascinates other musicians as well. This is Randy Bachman, and I'm a Canadian musician. I was in the Canadian bands The Guess Who, who had many hits, the big one being American Woman. I then uh, wrote and produced and sang in Bachman Turner Overdrive, and our big hits were You Ain't See Nothing Yet, Taking Care of Business. Randy might be rock and roll royalty, but it was on his radio show that he revealed how he got close to solving the mystery of this chord. Okay, the most famous chord ever on a 12-string guitar. This is the one chord that everyone around the world knows. Now, Denise and I were in London last year. A wonderful thing happened. We're supposed to come home on a, a Wednesday, and something goes wrong with our bathroom, and they got to fix the tile there and stuff. So we stay one more day, and that night, I got an email from Giles Martin, who's George Martin's son. And he grew up with all the Beatles, and now he's inherited the throne because his dad's about 82, George Martin's about 82, and pretty much deaf. So Giles Martin is doing all the Beatles stuff, all the remastering that you might have bought at Christmas in mono and stereo, the Cirque du Soleil Beatles thing in Las Vegas, uh, the Beatles rock band, which we bought for Christmas, which was fantastic. To have us singing with three-year-old grandkids, Lucy in the Sky, it's, just, it's a wonderful thing to get. Honestly, you've got to get that. 
So we go into, uh, Charles Martin invites us into the studio. So we go to Abbey Road Studio, and it's like the suite. No one else can get in there. Charles Martin gets in, and he invites us in. We go in there. It's incredible. He says to us, I have all the Beatles source tapes. They've all been put in here. What do you, in a computer, in Pro Tools. What do you want to hear? So the Beatles have recorded, you know, just like 300 songs. And uh, I think about it for a while and I say, well, there's been a lot of argument and speculation. And I know guys have written little books on it. The first chord of Hard Day's Night. What is the first chord? He said, okay, I'll let you hear it. So he put up one track at a time. Because when you hear it all at once, it's like, bang. It's like the greatest thing to hear all at once. I heard the first chord. It was George on a 12-string, just like this. And it's an F chord. But you put a G on top, and you put a G on the bottom, and you put a C next to that G. Now, I said, and put on Paul's bass. What, what note was Paul playing? Paul's playing a D on the bass, and John's rhythm guitar was a D chord with a sus4, which means it got a G note on it. So now listen to this. We only did this yesterday, and it just blew me away. One, two, three, four. Isn't that fantastic? Woo! Here we go. One, two, three, four. So, that's it. Case closed, right? Yeah, well, not so fast. The way he describes it is that he heard each instrument individually. They weren't recorded on separate tracks back then. There wouldn't have been room to record them each on separate tracks. But the process of separating the instruments was done through software, I think for the rock band game. But the software that decomposes it is not 100% accurate. Okay, so what Jason's getting at here is that during the recording of A Hard Day's Night, the drums, bass and two guitars were recorded onto a single track, the same track. And the thing is, once you do that, you can't undo it. All the different sounds are there on top of each other, on the same track, recorded at the same time. So for the rock band game, to isolate the individual instruments that Randy Bachman heard, they would have had to use software to artificially undo it all. But Jason had a hunch that this software, it was wrong. And the reason for his hunch was that he'd run a similar analysis himself. I had known about the controversy since I had tried to play the chord on the guitar. And in 2004, I had heard that it was the Beatles' 40th anniversary of A Hard Day's Night, and that got me thinking about it again. By that point, I was no longer a teenager, but I was a math professor. And I'd had many years of mathematics behind me, and I thought of combining the music with the mathematics and thinking about whether there'd be a scientific way to decide how the chord was being played. So Jason, Beatles superfan and mathematician, recruited science to help solve this mystery. I was in the habit of reading math books, which would rank for most people as a strange hobby. <laughs> not at all. Not, not for me anyway. I think we're, we're <laughs> like-minded souls, Jason. <laughs> I just picked up math books to read for interest. And one of the books that I picked up had a chapter on mathematics and sound. And it was in this chapter that Jason first heard about Fourier transforms, a mathematical technique that lets you take a signal, say a chord, and break it down into its component parts, or the fundamental notes that make it up. So what I did was I took a segment of the opening chord and I ran it through this Fourier transform. 
algorithm. So I could decompose the segment of the opening chord into a bunch of these fundamental notes. And I got a lot of them. I got of the order of 30,000 of them. So that famous chord, the opening chord to A Hard Day's Night, is made up of 30,000 frequencies. But this was only part of Jason's discovery. You see, his analysis also revealed the relative loudness of each of those frequencies. I realised that the notes that were actually being played in the chord would be amongst the loudest ones. Now, of course, there might be things like harmonics that I mentioned earlier and, you know, other frequencies that might correspond to noise. But this allowed me to start making some mathematical deductions from the data that I got. So Jason starts attributing these loud frequencies to the instruments that science says should have played them. And this is where the weirdness kicks in. On the one hand, he found a bunch of notes that he and everyone else expected to be there. But on the other hand, a surprise. Missing pieces. While I found out there were certain notes in the chord that I expected, there were other notes that I thought were in the chord that weren't there, that people had transcribed into the chord because they believed that it had to be in the chord, but actually weren't there. They were deciding that they heard those frequencies because they ought to be there, when in fact they weren't there. These are like ghost notes, notes that your brain expects to hear based on the context they appear in the song, but that actually aren't there. Like, pretty much every Beatles songbook transcribes the chord with a G note on the lowest guitar string. But that note just isn't there in the actual recording. There are Gs in the chord. There's just no low G on the bottom. And I think the reason that people put the low G in the chord is their analysis was tainted from music theory. They understood that the key of the song was the key of G, and perhaps they felt because they heard a G in the chord, it ought to be a G chord. There ought to be a G at the bottom. But that's a musical inference, and it's not something that you can say definitively, and actually the analysis indicated to me that there wasn't a G on the bottom. In fact, what I found out from my analysis was that the bottom note being played is a D on Paul McCartney's Hofner bass, and in fact, the notes being played by George Harrison don't have a G on the bottom, they actually have an A on the bottom. And as if Jason's analysis wasn't tricky enough to begin with, what with 30,000 frequencies and ghost notes, it was made even more difficult by the fact that, get this, the Beatles weren't even in tune. Well, that's one of the things that you can't tell by listening to it. What I found out is when I was moving the frequencies to the closest note, some were quite a distance away from what would be the closest note. And I think, you know, what must have gone on was by the time the Beatles recorded their final take, which was take nine, just before that, their producer, George Martin, should have rapped on the uh, window and said, uh, lads, we better tune up again. You're slightly out of tune. <laughs> but he didn't say that, I don't think. So it is slightly out of tune forever. But that's part of the beauty of the chord. And while ghost notes and out-of-tune guitars are pretty weird, they're not even the weirdest thing that Jason found, not by a long shot. From everything that I had read before, including George Martin saying, you know, it was a wonderful chord that George Harrison played on his 12-string, I had expected that it was just George Harrison's 12-string. But, of course, I understood how that 12-string was strung, and I began to make some deductions, but I ran into a roadblock because it wasn't quite playable on a guitar. And it wasn't quite playable even on George Harrison's brand new 
12-string Rickenbacker guitar. And I knew what the other Beatles had played, possibly on that chord, John Lennon's rhythm guitar and Paul McCartney's bass. And even knowing all that, I still ran into logical problems with trying to deduce who played what, even if I allowed the chord to be not just being played by George Harrison, but by John Lennon and Paul McCartney. No matter which way Jason arranged his data, it never completely lined up with the instruments that the Beatles were playing. This chord wasn't playable by the Beatles on their three Beatle guitars. Well, the problem was that I got stuck. And I got stuck because I had three frequencies for a certain F note. And the way Jason was working was that once he'd matched a frequency to a note, he'd then go and match that note to an instrument. But these F notes, they just weren't sticking to any of the three Beatle guitars. Now, the way a 12-string is strung is such that if George Harrison had played that F frequency, you would have had the frequency up the octave, which wasn't there, which tell me those three F frequencies weren't coming from George Harrison's guitar. Now, perhaps one of those was being played by John Lennon on his guitar. And perhaps, though it's very unlikely, Paul McCartney was playing more than one note on his bass, and that might give another F frequency. But then you were left with a third F frequency, which had no home, no source. And so I almost gave up looking at the chord, but then I realized that I had an assumption that I had carried with me because it was just natural, based on everything I had read, that the Beatles had played that opening chord. But what happens if that assumption wasn't quite true? What happens if there was another instrument? You ready for this? This is Jason's moment of genius. One thing that I realized was a piano typically has three strings tuned identically corresponding to each note, and a hammer hits them. So perhaps those three frequencies could come from a single note on the piano. And I remembered that later on in the song, you can clearly hear a piano doubling George Harrison's lead guitar solo. So I thought maybe there is a piano in the song. A piano? So it became very important to me to find out whether a piano might be the source for these three F frequencies. So I had to run down to a store and stick my head inside different pianos, grand pianos, to see (laughs) where they change from two to three. And so before I got thrown out of the store by the manager, I managed to determine, yes, it was plausible. And it actually told me a little deduction about the piano used in the Abbey Road Studios to record that chord. And it told me that it was a mid-sized grand piano as opposed to a much larger grand piano because of where, where that note sits. These missing F notes, they could only be made by a mid-sized grand piano. There's somehow unique parts to how a piano is strung over its entire range. And in mathematics, you look for those unique things because there's something that you can hang your arguments on. The final piece slid into the puzzle. Buried deep in the mix of the shimmering opening chord to A Hard Day's Night, someone, maybe Ringo, but probably George Martin, had played an F note on a mid-sized grand piano. The imperceptible nuance that gives the chord its magic touch. In that moment, Jason knew that he'd solved the Beatles' mystery, a mystery that had been buzzing around his subconscious brain for decades ever since he was a teenager learning to play Beatles songs on his summer break. Yes, you know, it was extraordinarily exciting. I've done math research over the years, 
and I still feel like a little kid when it comes to doing research that I find out new stuff all the time and that's a pleasure in itself just uncovering something new You know, it is fascinating that the cord was a mystery for such a long time, and people still talk about it. You know, what they did with the tools that they had at hand. I mean, they don't have the kind of software and devices that we have now where you can do all sorts of tricks with frequencies. They had to just make a mystery out of standard instruments and notes being played on them. It's just fascinating. I think George Martin describes creating mysteries in songs like a film producer creating special effects in a movie. If James Bond jumped through a plate glass window, the director doesn't come on screen and say, don't worry about the actor, he's fine. It's just it's some film trickery. The Beatles didn't feel the need to explain the mysteries that they put into their songs, the musical mysteries. That may be, you know, one of the legacies of the Beatles' music is the brilliance of what they put into their songs on so many levels that people 40, 50 years later and undoubtedly longer will still be analyzing them and still be trying to figure out what made them so great. Magical Mystery Chord was produced and presented by Joel Werner for Some of All Parts, a podcast about the unseen influence of numbers on everyday life. For instance, there's an episode about how a school of fish helped an Australian netball team win a gold medal, and another about how two trains tell a story of inequality in New York. Check it out. Take a deep breath in. And out. There we go. In the right hands, even the sounds of medical equipment can be made into a musical composition. The podcast Constellations celebrates just that kind of sound art and audio ephemera. This story is about transplant recipient Karina Martin, as told by Miyuki Yokiranta. Constellation says of Miyuki's work, we love Miyuki's spacious and detailed approach to sound design. Her transitions between sequences pull us in and out of the narrative as we float alongside the procedures. Here is No Event. They noticed sort of maybe two hours in that after I'd been born, I had blue fingernails and blue lips. Miyuki, M-I-Y, U-K-I, Yokiranta, J-O-K-I. Turn it on, and then now we'll start it. And how often does it go off during Every half hour, I think, during the day, and then like hourly or two hourly at night. 
the doctors diagnosed the a secondary condition, pulmonary hypertension. And that's when we started talking about uh, transplantation, as it turned out, of both lungs and heart. 3.31pm. I'm sitting here waiting for this thing to go... No event. Okay. That's it for another half hour. I'm reminded of that old adage that life is long stretches of boredom punctuated by sheer moments of panic. They put you on a, a, they call it a passive list. And then there comes a point where the decision is, do we need to go on on the active list? The workup blood tests takes about a year of just waiting. Every test you can ever think of. Full body scan thing. Waiting. Skin tests. Waiting. Bone density test. What else have I done? You know, an echocardiogram. Waiting. Wait. Psychological test too. That's the other one I forgot. Six thirty-four. I've turned the machine on and off twice. There's been error messages. Every time there's an error message, it does it again. So I'm waiting again. And um, I got the phone call. Career Martin. Are you available to come in at five o'clock tomorrow morning? And I was like, yep. (laughs) Let's do it. (laughs) I just remember when I, once I was fully awake, um, looking at my hands. Now, I've always had fairly purple fingertips because of my circulation. And I would have spent the first 24 hours looking at my hands, thinking, this is an out-of-body experience. They're not my hands. My hands don't look like that. <laughs> they were pink.
8.29 p.m. I passed again. No Event was told by Karina Martin and produced by Miyuki Yokiranta. You may recognize Miyuki's name from the Australian Broadcasting Corporation show Soundproof. Just an update, she's now hosting the show Earshot. Lots of talent down under, that is for sure. Before we go, we wanted to give you a heads up. The 2018 Third Coast Conference is coming up October 4th through 6th. It's three days of sessions, conversations, and meetups about the art and craft of audio storytelling. And registration opens at the end of July. The Third Coast Conference is for producers of all levels, experienced and beginners alike. And it always sells out. So keep an eye on our website for the latest news and announcements. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Dennis Funk with Isabel Vasquez and curated by Johanna Zorn and Maya Goldberg-Safer. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. With so much to listen to and so little time, ReSound. All diamonds, no rough. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.